Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Nonprofit Utopia Podcast, formerly known as Nonprofit U. Our podcast is an extension of our community, and we provide a forum where nonprofit stakeholders can share lessons learned and discuss the latest developments in the industry. My name is Valerie Vanek, your host. I'm the founder of Nonprofit Utopia, the ideal community for emerging nonprofit leaders. I work with nonprofit organizations to help make them stronger and help them make a stronger impact to their clients and communities. You can find out more about us on nonprofitutopia.com, Facebook, and Twitter. I encourage you to follow us and to comment early and often using the hashtags nonprofitutopia, civic, and that's C-V-I-C, and Opportunity Zones. You can also leave comments on blogtalkradio.com forward slash nonprofit utopia. The chat room is open, and you can post comments and questions, and we have a new system. You don't have to create a new account. You can actually go right into the chat room and post your comments, and be sure to leave your name and where you're from and any comments or questions that you might have. If you have a question that you're not comfortable leaving in the chat room, please feel free to call me at 773-571-3886, or you can email me at Valerie F. Leonard, F. S. Frank, at nonprofitutopia.com. For obvious reasons, I won't be able to get right back to you while we're on air, but I will get back to you just as soon as I can. We'll be taking questions by phone and from our chat room at about the 30-minute mark or so. The call-in number is 347-884-8121. And for those of you who are listening and also looking at your episode page, you will see that phone number at the top of your episode page. We encourage you to sign up for our mailing list to keep abreast of the latest developments with the nonprofit Utopia community. We've included a link to our mailing list in the comments section, which is right below that chat box. Innovation Group estimated that U.S. investors collectively had over $6.1 trillion, that's trillion with T-R, unrealized capital gains by the end of 2017. What if these funds could be funneled to economically struggling areas? The recently passed Tax Reform Act included a potential tax break for investors in which they may defer capital gains taxes on the sale of any asset by investing those gains through a qualified opportunity fund. And the beauty of this is you get to self-qualify, so you are the one, as far as I know, unless something has changed, you are the one who decides whether or not you are qualified and you will provide that certification once you do your taxes and our guests can correct me at the appropriate time if I'm wrong. And today's topic is when opportunity knocks, exploring ways the opportunity zones may be used to revitalize communities. We will talk about a one billion, that's billion with a B, low local investment opportunity and the implications for investors, neighborhoods, local businesses, and nonprofits. So be sure to take notes. 
call in with your burning questions. If you have any experience with these opportunity funds, you know, we would love to hear what your perspectives are and all that good stuff. So in the interim, I am going to introduce you to both our guests. Our first guest is Anthony Oliver. Anthony is a real estate developer, and he's the founder of Community Venture Investment Corporation, or Civic for short. This is a for-profit company that specializes in the acquisition, development, and management of a multi-family housing in low to moderate income communities based in Chicago. Founded in 2002, Civic, which is also a licensed general contractor, seeks to put people first and improve human potential using profitable earned income social investment models as its formula for building better communities. We're also joined by Corey Oliver. Corey is the chief operating officer, and he also is over project management as well as asset management. And Corey has been with the company since they started, and he is going to also help answer any questions that you might have. And a little bit more about Civic. In 2006, they successfully completed the $10.3 million Lawndale restoration project within the budget. And at that time, the budget was $10.3 million. And the company purchased and restored 109 units consisting of buildings located in the North Lawndale area, my home. As a result, Civic received one of the most prestigious awards. You can get the Good Neighbors Award in 2009. And currently, their portfolio has successfully evolved from a smaller residential to a predominantly larger multi-unit affordable rental property model with units located on the west and south sides of Chicago. So as you can see, we have two very well-qualified people here to, you know, basically cut our heads open. I hope I don't tell too graphic and pour knowledge in. Um, this is, you know, a very, very interesting topic, and I thought you might be interested in well as well. So I want to thank you so much, gentlemen, for being with us. Again, we have Anthony Oliver and Corey Oliver. And before we get Thanks, started, okay, you're quite welcome, quite welcome. And and before we get started, you know, I, I see that your journey has been very interesting, Anthony. I mean, you started Streetwise, a newspaper that's sold for people without homes or who are at risk for being homeless. And then you've also been active on a number of Congressman Danny K. Davis's task forces, and you've been very active in terms of real estate investment on Chicago's west and south side, and you hire people who live in the community. Can you describe your journey from local landlord to founding the newspaper, and I'm not quite sure which came first, but you're now an investor that's positioned to capitalize on the opportunity zone. So can you kind of tell us your story? Absolutely. And thanks for having me, Val. Um, mm-hmm. The story began for me, this journey, in, in 1992, uh, when I saw something on the streets of Chicago 
we had men and women shaking cups and they were calling themselves homeless and, you know, growing up with a mother, we all been poor, single mother, head of household, growing up in low end mm-hmm. Chicago. I was always challenged, you know, by the, the notion that able bodied men were out there shaking cups and you know, that kind of disturbed me and it and it was very tempting because I felt like they were able bodied. So we built a uh, newspaper. It was Streetwise newspaper, and back then it definitely wasn't economic premise, and we didn't we didn't go necessarily for grants. We didn't. It was a not for profit, but we felt that we were going to ride or die based on the sale of the newspaper. So the vendor bought the newspaper wholesale for twenty five cents. They went to the street and they sold the paper for one dollar. They had a three hundred percent return on their investment. And so the journey began. I began to Mm -hmm. teach them about ways to grow to greater levels of self-sufficiency and how we can begin to do for self if we think about the economics. Putting that economics first, I think, was the key. I saw that. I felt that in my soul, and I knew it was something God gave me to do. And so 27, fast forward 27 years later, Streetwise has served over 13,000 homeless men and women in the streets of Chicago. They are going to work for themselves every day. They're doing for themselves. You know, it's the reverse of the squeaky wheel phenomenon. If if you're doing something Mm -hmm. well, the wheel doesn't, if it's oiled, it doesn't squeak. So nobody really hears about it. It's not, you know, one of those loud things because it's working. It's working. Mm-hmm. It's in the community. It's embedded. It's successful. And I think, uh, for me, that became a social enterprise movement. We were at the forefront. Little did I know then, I learned a lot from so many people who helped me, that we were at the forefront of a social enterprise movement, mm-hmm. moving people from the mindset of social services and moving them to a more sustainable model called social enterprise. And I called it bottoms-up economics. And there was a formula that I use, and I still use it today. And that formula is earned income plus elevated human potential equals sustainable return on investment. And I think for me, that's where it all began when I when I transferred or transitioned in 2005 from Streetwise. I went in directly into real estate because I felt real estate is the key to sustainability. And I went directly into the low to moderate income communities. And that's where I began to learn so much about return on investment, about the mitigation of the asset, and about the investor, the investor, because I had help. I've learned from so many people, wealthy people. I've seen this opportunity fund years ago before it became today's opportunity fund because when I transitioned from Streetwise, I had investors that went with me, and we created an investment model that by they would invest in what I was doing, and I would invest in the communities of my choice, and then together mm-hmm. we'll create a return on investment. Well, those are the premise, the same premises right now with this so-called new opportunity zone that we're going to be operating on as you go forward with the conversation. 
you're going to see that there is something else here that we all need to see now, that we are now at a point that I call tabula rasa, tabula rasa, a blank slate. Mm -hmm. The Jobs and Act Opportunity Act, the Jobs and Tax Cut Act of 2017 was pushed out And what it did was it created favorable tax breaks for wealthy men and women or those who had capital gains or money that would come from the stock market. But also there was a little-known additive to this that was pushed out by the U.S. Treasury Department called Opportunity Zones. And so when Corey and I did, we were doing research because we're entrepreneurs. And so, you know, entrepreneurs live by the creed. You eat what you kill. That means you have to go get it. We don't get funding. We're in the open market. We're a small business. We're in low-income communities, and we have to do our homework and our research. And so we, we did a lot of research on this Jobs and Tax Act back in January of 2018, and we discovered it. It was right there, the opportunity zone. And as we kept reading about this, it began to unveil itself. And it was the fund that was exciting. You see, the zones were already preset. They were preset by governors back in 2017 before the Jobs Act was approved. So the fund, the zones were already preset. There was nothing exciting to me about opportunity zone per se. Because once you set a boundary, the boundary is set. What excited me was the fund that must go into the zone. And I think as we move forward with our conversation today, my goal is to unveil to you the wonderful mysteries of this fund and how it must be deployed into low-income communities. There's never been a mandate that has deployed that requires the open market to deploy directly into low-income communities. And at first, I thought it was something like, oh, the enterprise zones or, you know, mm-hmm. the, the 10, 1031 exchanges that we hear from government programs. And I said, ah, this is just another one of those things. But it's not. It's a capital market that is very fluid. And as you mentioned, mm-hmm. $6 trillion, $1 trillion, these are the things that have been mentioned about this entire open market. A large open market has now been mandated to be deployed into low-income communities. And guess who was there already? Somebody <laughs> called Anthony. Anthony was already there. I was already in low-income. That's what we do. And so as we studied over the last year, we went to – we went to see if this thing was real. So Corey and I, uh, we met with capital fund investors. We like, let's go see if this thing is real. And in mm-hmm. 2018, we journeyed. I mean, we really journeyed. We met with so many fund managers, and they were telling us, well, yeah, it seems to be real, but there's just not a lot there that we understand. And then in mm-hmm. mid-2018, you started to see something. Fund managers were putting together these large funds. I'm talking about $500 billion 
I'm talking about $1 billion. And these were called wow. opportunity funds. Absolutely. This was amazing. And I'm like, hold on. They're putting together these large pools of funds, and these funds must be deployed in low-income communities. They must be. So there's got to be something to that. So that's where we are today, Valerie. We're, we're there at that point. So you said, and they must come through you, right? You got to create must the come mechanism. to my neighborhood. <laughs> and Mr. Rogers is at home. He's right at home. He's sitting there with his sweater on, and he's waiting on them. He's, he's not waiting on them to knock on the door. He's knocking on the door with them. You see what I'm saying? Because I see this as such a big, big phenomenon that we have never seen before, and we cannot just dismiss it as another tax cut for the rich. Get that out of your mindset. Because if mm-hmm. there's money to become and, and become more self-sustaining, think about it this way. Our communities have been grant-dependent. Every time I think I look at people who want to start a new business, they say, yeah, I saw this grant. Oh, really? You saw that grant. So 10,000 other people saw that same grant. That grant is very limited in scope. Mm-hmm. And guess what? Right. You're going to do a lot of work. You're going to do a lot, make a lot of effort. And at the end of the day, you're going to compete for a very small niche of money with your effort. There's going to be very little return on investment with your effort. So let's think about it this way. If you think about your time, energy, and effort and your utilization and return on investment, what niche do you think we should be playing in? A trillion-dollar niche or a trillion-dollar market? <laughs> it's not a niche. It's a market. And Or would you want to pay, play in a, in a $1 million niche? which is where most of our community and it has been for many, many years. So my goal, my goal with this big push is to talk to our community about changing its mindset. Don't mm-hmm. dismiss this fund because people are doing it, and it ain't going away. So it's now time for us. It's called a paradigm shift. Mm-hmm. It's a tabla rasa, a blank slate. We get to write on it, too, just like the wealthy wealthy fund managers. They don't know. This is new. It just hit in 2017. In fact, it is so new that the first set of regs came out in October of 2018. The second regs just hit on last Wednesday. So this market is very new, and it's a big market, and we all need to be coming together around it to play in this market. So I'm going to shut up. I kind of laid the premise and the journey, Mm -hmm. and I'm going to allow you to ask the questions. Okay. Well, that was really, really helpful. And, And what I love about you and Corey is you can take this stuff that is mind boggling, you know, because I had to read and get a basic understanding just so I could ask halfway intelligent questions. And I'm just amazed at how you can take that complicated tax code and just break it down so everybody can understand it. And I really, really appreciate that. You're definitely helping me. If nobody else gets help, I am being helped just 
listening to you. But before we go further, I, I just want to get Corey's story, and, and then we'll get a little deeper. So, Corey, what brings you here, you know, in, in terms of your story, you know, in the investment world and all that good stuff? Sure. Um, well, let's see. I finished undergrad in uh, 2004 um, and then finished my MBA shortly after that in 2006. Um, mm-hmm. So obviously not exactly the greatest time to be coming out of school. Um, you know, right. the, the market crashing and, and jobs drawing up. And, you know, so, I mean, it was, it was a tough time. You know, came out, uh, went down to live uh, with my sister in Atlanta for a little bit, um, you know, to see if I could maybe find some opportunities down there. Uh, ended up moving back to Chicago when it looked like there was really nothing down there for me in Atlanta, and I started off at our property management arm. Um, and so I managed our south side portfolio, um, which was a mix at the time of uh, some smaller sing- uh, smaller multifamilies and some single families uh, across uh, from Roseland to Inglewood um, to South Shore, Auburn Gresham, et cetera. Uh, and so from the, at that point, uh, I just kind of kind of worked and, and continued to try to move up uh, and try to mm-hmm. learn a little bit more every single time you know that I came out. Um, ended up getting burned out a little bit with property management and took some time off. I got licensed um, as an MBA and uh, FIBA sports agent and, and began representing professional basketball players uh, across the world. Um, and so I did that. For, for several years where I was putting players overseas um, and still time to time, you know, I still work with players and whatnot uh, to, to put them overseas. Um, you know, I've placed players anywhere from Greece to Israel, Georgia, um, you know, uh, Italy, Spain, all over the world. Um, wow. And then also I've, I've worked with uh, NBA players, um, you know, such as like Lance Thomas who plays with the Knicks, Chris Copeland who was with the Pacers, um, and so, you know, and so finally, um, you know, I, I decided that, you know, I, I wanted to try to merge the two lives. And so I came back and, and uh, started doing some more real estate on the um, project side, more construction side. Um, and so I went into more of our project management side, uh, working our rehabs, planning, budgeting, uh, executing you know, all of the strategies in regards to that. Um, and then, mm-hmm. you know, kind of worked back forward and, and, and started figuring out, okay, uh, what can we use now? Um, where where can we get better? Uh, what can we, you know, what processes can we do now to get better? What systems do we need to add? What do we need to replace? Uh, and then just kind of dug into more of the operation side of things and trying to streamline and, and helping the people that we've, we've brought on to become stronger at what they do on a day-to-day basis. And so, um, you know, that was always something that I had looked at is, okay, well, if we're going to, you know, be uh, trying to strengthen the people who are in our communities and trying to help them move forward, they're going to need systems and tools in place uh, so that they can try to figure out how to be the best at their job that they can be. And so, um, mm-hmm. You know, I really try to support our property managers, uh, give them the tools and the systems that they need so that they can be successful managing properties on a day-to-day basis, um, help them with any type of problem solving or anything that they, they need. And then as well, um, putting together our crews and in in in, uh, developing projects. And so um, that's more or less, I think, my wheelhouse is, is 
you know, mm-hmm. really on the construction side and, and doing the project management and uh, putting together the idea for the, the properties and, and making those things kind of come together. But Valerie also, to add, he's, he's also been uh, very instrumental. We own a moving company, too, uh, in Woodlawn. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, our moving company has been in business since 1971. So we're very well entrenched in, in the community. But the the population that we employ um, is a microcosm of all of the social things that we see our community is is facing. You know, we have ex-offenders. We have sometimes the some mentally unstable. We we deal with uh, low income, low with labor. Our men and women we value so much because we've we've helped to strengthen them, and they helped to strengthen mm-hmm. us. And so. You know, when you talk about how important it is to deploy these resources and get this trillion-dollar market to deploy to the bottom, this, to me, is our answer. It cuts through the social ills. When you talk about economics, you lead in with economics. It, it slices through all of those years, you talk about the thugs and the gangbangers, you talk about the homeless, you're talking about those who just been ex, ex, ex-offenders, let out of prison. You know, these, these men and women are people who have made some choices in life but are ready to change their lives, but they need a vehicle. Now, I don't want to get too social, but mm-hmm. clearly – what is missing in our community is a lack of focus on the economics to lift the social tide. That's missing. Because if you think about it this way, these guys tell me all the time, and I've seen it because I worked in nonprofit, I built a nonprofit. They say, Anthony, man, listen, dog, you know, we get out of we get out of jail, we know we made a mistake. First thing we gotta do is we gotta find work. Oh, I'm going to be back on the block. So let me come in mm-hmm. with you, help you out, man, and let me let me get about this work, and then I'll go sit in a program once I'm making money. It's the other way around, it seems like, in our community. We let these guys out, and then we handcuff them again in society by making them go and sit down in a classroom and mm-hmm. think that they're going to sit there all day knowing that they need to earn an income so that they can begin to build their lives and to change the mistakes that they made. That income is Mm. extremely important. And so for me, building from homelessness to creating greater levels of self-sufficiency, the Opportunity Fund is the real trickle-down open market mechanism that can be, and I don't say it will be, even though people are doing it without us, they're doing mm-hmm. a different model. You got you got the capitalist model, and we've talked to them. We mm-hmm. know who they are, and they're all good people. But they're focused on those quantitative, quantifiable. They're hitting numbers constantly. You got them, but you mm-hmm. also have social impact investors who represent a large part of the capital market that we don't seize directly, and we haven't. But I've had experience mm-hmm. with them because they've they've been a part of my my um, 
portfolio and my investment history. So they've seen where we've taken their wealth, we've deployed their wealth to real estate, we've created mm-hmm. an investment model with return on cash, we created a dividend system by which they get paid quarterly, and mm-hmm. we created an exit strategy by which you can get out. That's the exact principle here of Mm -hmm. the Opportunity Fund. You see, the Opportunity Fund is a patient fund. Let's talk about Mm -hmm. that. It's okay. Okay, yeah, that's fine. I I was going to segue into that. Mm -hmm. Okay, a patient fund. Perfect. All right. And you look at it, and in its mandate, it says that fund, if deployed, now, of course, wealthy people, the good news is they're not mandated to do an opportunity fund. They, they mm-hmm. can choose other vehicles. But I guarantee you the incentives of this opportunity fund vehicle is about to come to their realization as being one of the best incentives that they could ever invest in. So if they're compelled to invest into an opportunity fund, they have 30 days. Once they 30 to 60 days, and Corey, correct me if mm-hmm. I'm right, if I'm wrong. 30 to 60 days, once they launched that 96.62 self-certification for that fund, to deploy that money into a low-income asset within the opportunity zone. And so once that money has been qualified for deployment, mm-hmm. their benefits for capital gains begins right away. So they win right there. That goes the first win. For them, mm-hmm. that's their incentive, right? So we've created an incentive base for the wealthy just with this one action, right? Here's the okay, second thing. Can we thing. back up? Like, okay, can we back sure. up for just a minute? Um, I, I just want to make sure that we're not losing people on the various capital gains. So, so you're saying that people can um, sell an asset, realize a capital gain, and within what? 60 days of making that sale, they can go and then invest in in an asset well, it, that is it, within the opportunity zone. Yes, but it, it's it's um it's actually six months. You have six months to claim a gain. Six months. Um, okay. Yes, and and it has to be. It can't just be any old capital gain, right? So. Uh, it has to be what is, is deemed as a long-term gain. So ultimately, like if you have people who are flipping properties and they're experiencing gains within a three-month hold period or something like that, that capital mm-hmm. gain would not qualify. So it would have to be something that was okay. held in an investment for over a year, usually like the stock market or you know or other other rental real estate, um, right? You know, any mutual funds, mm-hmm. bonds, anything like that, right? And usually, okay. and usually when 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 people who are getting these type of gains and there's all there's remember there's over a trillion dollars of these of these uh resources out there. So there's a lot of people that's been doing this. Then they usually invest in either they make a choice to invest back into the market again or mm-hmm, they may want to they may want to go into something that is less riskier, bonds or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Well the the opportunity fund is another vehicle that they can choose at this point. And it has more incentives than what I just named. 
Because okay. those incentives for the wealth investor includes a five, seven, ten year incentive base, which we can go into. But basically, yeah, the first, their taxes. Corey, you want to go into the five, ten mm-hmm. year? Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. So, so ultimately, I mean, the, the simplest way to, to look at it is the, there, there are two different mechanisms that run the benefits of the fund. So you have the five and seven year, which operate, uh, which state that if you hold your investment in, into the fund uh, for five years, you get a 10% step down on your initial investment. So what that means is, for example, um, if you were to make an initial investment of, let's just say, $100,000, um, and you mm-hmm. kept that money in the fund for five years, uh, when you pulled your money out after five years, you would pay um, taxes on $90,000 right. of that, right? And so you mm-hmm. would ultimately save $10,000 plus, you know, whatever your your differential of of your tax was. Then if you stayed in an additional two years, you get an additional 5% step, uh, step down. So instead of being at 90, you're at 85. So that's the first mechanism of it, right? Um, and then ultimately, mm-hmm. if you leave it in for 10 years, you would get those those two benefits plus um, any any accrual of appreciation. So once the asset is sold or whatever, uh, whatever gains you gain on the sale of the, the asset would all be 100% tax-free. Unbelievable. Wow. Unbelievable. Wow. And so, so the incentive... Thank you. For the investor is amazing, right? Mm-hmm. Now, they're incentivized to deploy this money. If you choose the opportunity fund into the zones, you have to deploy this money in a qualified opportunity zone. Mm-hmm. There's 8,700 qualified opportunity zones across the country. Right. In Chicago, there's 135. Mm-hmm. On the west side of Chicago, there's 61. Wow. And on the south side of Chicago, there's 74. And according to the Urban Institute study, which came out in January of this year, it's leveraging opportunity zones for Cook County and the city of Chicago by the Urban Institute, the profile of residents in our zone is 84% African-American. Let me repeat that. Our zones are populated by 84% African-American. So whether we we become a, a capital gains investor, which a lot of us won't, so I'm going to make it very clear, we will probably, you know, we won't. For us, though, the, the value proposition is to leverage with capital gain investors to help mm-hmm. them to understand how important it is. This is what we're doing, how important it is to deploy capital in the inner city, which they're not doing now. So just to let you know, this this is a challenge that I undertook, that I look forward to, 
and we've gotten a lot of doors slammed in our face. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's a gentle slam. They didn't bust our head with the door. It's a gentle <laughs> slam. You know what I mean? It's like we'll listen to you, Anthony, right. and we'll get back with you, you know. But there is a compelling proposition to be made, and I've seen it with the new regs that have just come out on Wednesday, that it's getting closer to making that proposition more compelling to invest in inner-city Chicago. But then mm-hmm. there's, there is an, an inherent proposition, and it, it's something like this. For example, in the news a couple weeks ago, you had Steve Glickman. By the way, Steve Glickman, for those of you who don't know, he is the architect of this fund. He did this back in 2013 on a, under the Obama administration. So even though it was pushed out mm-hmm. now, we do appreciate it being pushed out. Just know that this thing originated back in 2013 with the Obama administration and Steve Glickman. So Steve Glickman, I was trying to find him. I know he had left AIG and he had disappeared for a minute off the face of the earth. And I said, he's got to come up somewhere because this man put this whole concept together. And lo and behold, a couple of weeks ago, if you look at the Chicago Tribune, you can get, you can Google this. <laughs> Steve yeah, Blickman, the story. Mm-hmm. you saw it. He's on the front page yeah. getting ready to launch $1 billion into the Michael Reese medical area there with the group. What's the group called, Corey? I believe it's well, like the, the Cindy. Disseminals or Decennial uh, Investment Group. Right. I can't remember the exact name of their, their – they have, like – it's a multiple group in, endeavor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and so they've put together a group, and they've launched in Chicago, where back in 2018, fund managers used to tell me that Chicago was not their favorite market. And I say, that's a bunch of hockey puck. That's hockey puck. <laughs> I don't believe that for one minute, that Chicago – is a, is not a favorite place to be invested in. When I know in the low-income community, as an investor myself, we've been doing it and we've had great returns. Number two, the stock of real estate in low-income communities in Chicago are very favorable to the investment climate. We just have to find the right codes to get the investment community to see where they can make the return on investment. Okay, um, I am doing a time check. We haven't gotten through half the questions that we talked about. Um, I'm just wondering. <laughs> I I find this to be very interesting. Um, I'm wondering if you guys would be prepared to go a little longer than the one hour sure. we had planned to go from two o'clock to three. The system sure. will cut us off after after ninety minutes. So, um, I just want to. We're here to support nonprofit utopia. We, you know, whatever we can do to get this out in our community, there are things we need to be doing as a community to get ready for this. Indeed, indeed. And if you can hold on just a moment, it looks like we have some callers. I'm going to ask them um, if they have anything to ask you. You know, sometimes people call just to listen more clearly. 
sometimes people call because they actually have questions. So I'm, I'm just going to go uh, through the callers and see. Um, there's one caller whose num- number is 773-510-3326. I'm going to make this mic live, and if you have a question or a comment, please um, share your question or comment. Okay, your mic is live right now. Um, any questions or comments? Okay, um, I'm assuming that there's no question or comment. Um, the next caller, your number is 773-526-2312. I'm going to make your mic live if you have a question or comment. Um, please share your question or comment. Um, caller, did you have a question or comment? Yes, this is Calvin King from Free Lunch Academy. Um, thank you for the information that you all have been sharing because these are some very seemingly promising opportunities that are coming right in our own backyards. However, I would like to hear, because I don't, I know enough to know that I don't know enough, what impact, if any, will this have on accelerated gentrification? Mm, great question. That's That's an awesome question, and I think in our meetings with people, um, Calvin, over the last year, that was the the dominant question. Here, let me let me sum it up the way that I see it. If you have a smaller market of wealth controlling our markets in the low income communities, they can do what they've been doing in the past, which means they can run up the numbers, and it creates gentrification and also unnecessary displacement. But the reason they've been allowed to do that is because they've been a very small group and they've been dominating our community and nobody has been there to meet them at the crossroad. So my goal is to open this thing up, uh, create the investment proposition for the small investor. My push is to get more smaller investors into our niche and try to create more of a open open competitiveness with these large groups. Of course, it's going to be challenging, but we must do it because, as you said, it's going to create runaway gentrification. And let me clarify something. I don't think gentrification is a bad thing. I think runaway gentrification and creating an accelerated high market and displacement is a bad thing because I know the poor can't lift the poor. We're going to need to integrate income. We're going to need to integrate investment. But what we don't need are other Ponzi schemes getting in on this market, which is what we've seen. And when they do get in on this, you'll see more writing about how people got in, made all this money, and just walked away from their properties. And we've seen that. We lived through that, you see. And so the reason I'm doing it, Calvin, is because we need to figure out a way where we can get this money to the smaller investor because the smaller investor is going to saturate this market and make it competitive in keeping price down. The the big guys with a small with a small niche of big guys dominating this market, they get to control the numbers. We need to tell the fund the fund community that their investment 
or riskier with a large dump of money and no competition in the low-income community by small investors. And, Calvin, if you think about it this way, if we're able to convince them, we must convince them, first of all, because it's too much money not to. When we convince them of the return on investment with the small investor, we're also going to see something else that's amazing. We're going to see people going to work in the trickle-down, the true trickle-down impact of this fund, getting this money to the bottom of our community and helping the gatekeepers who have traditionally couldn't see the moment to open these gates and let this thing flow to the bottom of our community. So gentrification, not a bad thing. Accelerated gentrification and displacement is a terrible thing. That's what we must mitigate and, and move from. Valerie, and I, I would like to kind of address that as well. Um, mm -hmm. And really, like, here, here's the reality. It, it, this stuff is here, right? We're not, we're not talking about in 10 years or 15 years. No, this, this stuff is here. So this stuff is coming. So the ultimate idea has to be when you're thinking of, about displacement and, and gentrification and things of that nature is, is how are we educating ourselves right now right. to pull up that community, right? Because the reality is if we're not doing things at the grassroots level um, to empower these people of these communities, that displacement is going to happen. That's so right. the idea has to be, okay, now that we know that this is where it's at, this is where they're trying to get the community to go, um, it's, it's now you have to then empower and train and, and help to pull these, the people of the community up to the level of which they're trying to, to get the community to go in, in the direction that they're going to. And so that's where the responsibility is on, on us as smaller business owners, as, as, as people who are trying to take advantage of this program. Um, you know, these big investors, they're going to come in and, and they're, they're not going to necessarily worry about uh, the community like we will because they're he we're here. We're, we're seeing these faces mm -hmm. on a day-to-day -day basis. We're managing these properties. We're seeing these families that are being impacted. Um, and so they may be an investor who is, you know, is based out of New York, Florida, L.A., or whatever. They, don't, they just want the asset to perform. You right. know? And so the responsibility is on us uh, who are here in the city on a day-to-day -day basis to try to open up the avenues uh, for the community to show people, like, uh, if you you know this is where the community is going. This is where the community is being pushed. Um, this is what you, if, if if you want to slow this whole thing down. If you want to slow down the displacement, uh, these are the things that need to be open. These are the opportunities that that need to be presented. So whether it's working in conjunction with unions and trades and and things like that to help uh, deliver skilled labor. Uh, so to help elevate that guy who's been in the neighborhood for the last 20 years and he's been everybody's handyman and really get him That's right. pulled up to that next level so that he's now uh, a plumber or an electrician or, or a, a property manager or a property manager or whatever um, you know that's how that's how we fight against uh, the bad as, uh, effects of, of rapid gentrification and that's how we work to stem that tide of of a community takeover and losing and losing our communities and and it's not a it's not a us versus them and so this ain't mm -hmm. you can't go out and protest in the street about give me some money 
in an open market. This is this is not a one of those things where you got to go marching and say, <laughs> oh, you better do this for the community if you come into the community. No, this is not that. This is an open market tabula rasa. It's a blank slate. It's working with those capital managers to show them how we can strengthen their investment on the inner city. You see, the money is a patient fund. That means whatever they do in our communities, that asset has to sit there five, seven, and ten years. There go the partnership right there. We can do things to help strengthen their investment proposition as well. And if we did it well and mobilized and began to organize and educate ourselves, we will then slow down and keep gentrification at a level. But also, we will be able to do something fantastic. And this is what excites me the most. If we did this, we will see right before your eyes a greater level of self-sufficiency do for self in our own communities, which is where we should be. So, Calvin, I think I think you're right on target with that question. I think it's time for us to get to that answer, and it's time for us to begin to mobilize with each other, have these conversations, and begin to open this floodgate to the bottom. Oh, that is awesome. You know, Anthony, as as you were talking, I'm sorry, Calvin, did you have a question? Not as thank you. Oh, okay. Um, so as you were talking, Anthony, I thought about the low-income tax credits and how, you know, for-profit developers and other investors, they work with the nonprofits, right? And they form these partnerships and they begin to, again, go and invest in the community for affordable housing. Is something like that currently being done, you know, with the opportunity funds or do you see an opportunity for something like that to happen so that nonprofits can get involved as well? And when I say nonprofits, I'm talking about the nonprofit community Absolutely. development corporations. Absolutely essential. Absolutely. Now you're getting to social enterprise. See, in low-income communities, we have distinct characteristics. We're not like the north side of Chicago where, you know, everybody is making over 100000 average per capita income. See, we, we have special situations that are taking place that are innate. Whenever you decide to invest in low-income communities, you inherit something, in other words. So our community, when you think about it, and I'm, I'm going to say something very controversial, and I hope people take it the right way, but if you don't, mm-hmm. it's my opinion. I think okay. the too large to the too large to fail nonprofits in our community does a disservice. I think they're 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 primitive. They're not flexible with today's issues on the streets. They require some of the too much funding, grant funding. Their balance sheets show eighty percent grants, ten percent earned income. You can't move. You can't really service a fast-paced, street-level community if you are stuck in bureaucratic structure. So the nonprofit 
Valerie, that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. This is the time for nonprofits to now reinvent themselves with philanthropy. And I made this statement in a community in a community release that I sent out today, just as my opinion. Mm-hmm. Nonprofit and philanthropy need to really think about dismantling some of these large primitive uh, structure, these old structure not-for-profits with a $50 million, $100 million budget sitting right in the low-income community, and we're about to do all of this economic change, but you got this dinosaur sitting there. So if the philanthropic community can begin to work with the smaller nonprofits, everything should lead with an economic Model And I think real estate is the key. I think nonprofits, if you are doing a nonprofit to service people, you should be doing it leading with real estate in our community. In other words, leverage some of these, real, some of these two flats and three flats, learn the value proposition, create a sustainable income, turn your balance sheet around to where your income, earned income, is about 80% earned income, 20% grants. Mm. Do that. And then you can service your men and women in this tabula rasa. In other words, when I built Streetwise back in the 90s, we didn't start with grants. I was able to go on the Lower Wacker Drive and sit and chill with the fellas without trying to perform to a grant, uh, boundaries of a grant. You see, I was able to go out and sell myself to see if the model works. We need innovative nonprofit ideas now to, to emerge in our communities. It's been stagnant. Innovation is important. The small nonprofit is a must. More flexible, more nimble nonprofits to address the fast-paced issues of our community. You got brothers and sisters getting out of jail every day, feeling dismayed, feeling depressed, no options. They don't want to go sit in these big places where they know they're going to be sitting there with 100 people. They need some concentration in areas where you can put your hands on them. It's the same thing. And I look at it two ways, okay? Mm-hmm. You change the balance sheet of the nonprofit organization. Change that balance sheet to 80% earning income, 20% grants, okay? Let the philanthropic organization seed, capital seed, for these nonprofits that come together with an earned income proposition. And real estate is the clearest way. Because that's where you're going to see the biggest returns, and you're going to see a clear-cut return on something that can create a foundation. So real estate is clear. And I, I think real estate is important in our community to put it to work. Now, I'm not saying go create three nonprofits on a block. I'm not saying <laughs> that. Because we got churches that do that. Okay? Remember, when you create a nonprofit, you take away the tax base. We need that tax base. So I'm saying we need to bring those nonprofits in line with a more social enterprise sort of phenomenon. And what you will see is you will be able to mitigate these larger initiatives with deploying this capital in our community. That's making the case. That's Mm -hmm. making the case. 
I and love it. I you, love let me, it. Let me, let me give you mm-hmm. one more true story. This is true. The okay. first story I gave you was true. This is the second story. In 1995. Don't, you, don't give us no false story. <laughs> oh, no. Well, you know. You know, I, I ain't I trying to put wind in the ski at all. I ain't trying to do that. <laughs> I want I want you to understand. You want to be able to touch, taste, and feel it, Valerie. I want you to feel yeah. this. So true stories bottoms up, though. See, this ain't this ain't right. no rich man telling you how he walked the land and all of a sudden he had a lot of money in his hand. This is a bottoms up story because you're gonna mm-hmm. lead okay. from the bottom. With my stories, you're leading from the bottom, not the top. So in 1995, I was I was building Streetwise. I was the CEO. Okay. And Streetwise is, is putting homeless men and women to work. <laughs> and we were down at the South Loop, South Loop, Chicago. You wouldn't recognize it today, but back then it was Skid Row. Right. And we were in, we are between Michigan and Wabash on 62 East 13th Street. We were in the middle of that block, and wow. then you had Wabash, you had Skid Row, you had Mystales, you had the St. James. It was a oh, haven for the homeless. It was. It was. It was where yeah, right. I we recruited. We went right where they were. Right. Mm-hmm. So we got wind that the community was about to change in the South Loop. Because I stick my nose in everything. And so I found <laughs> focus in construction. I'll never forget these dudes, man. They didn't even want to come see me. They didn't want to see me. They tried to bypass me. But I used to show up in their meetings at night, 8 o'clock. And they were talking about all this large development plan that was cited for the South Loop all the way down. And you know where the South Loop is now, how it looks. <laughs> so I right, right. It's 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 nothing that we can afford to live in. So just know that. So I went to my <laughs> board of directors and I said, "Listen, we better buy something because they're about to throw our butts out of here." You think you think <laughs> when all this development is done, they want homeless men and women coming down the street dragging bags because they drag everything <laughs> they got, right? They do. I mean, right, right. that's that's the way we deal with it, right? And then. They selling streetwise, and so you coming down the South Loop is the way it is today. Can you imagine ten and fifteen? See, we had over we had over three hundred homeless men and women selling streetwise. So you think they wanted that in the South Loop? But anyway, my board of directors, oh, they went bananas. Are you kidding? This is not our business model. This is, you know, we're here to help them by earning an income. And now you want to go into real estate? If we buy real estate. We're gonna to have to we're gonna to have to manage the real estate. I said absolutely, <laughs> but one thing we're gonna manage is ownership. Right. Ownership. So, long story short, I convinced them to buy. We bought the building at thirteen thirty one South Michigan Avenue back in nineteen ninety six. We bought that building for like two hundred and fifty K on Michigan Avenue. Wow. Can you imagine? Wow. Right there, it's still it's still there today. That same building sits there today, and I think they turned it into a high-level fitness center, private fitness center. But that building, they didn't tear it down. When I left Streetwise in 2005, we sold that building for $2 million. That money went to Streetwise to sustain Streetwise future. 27 years later, 13,000 men and women are 
been able to come through and access streetwise for the sake of real estate and sustainability. That's a true story. And that's why I transitioned into real estate. So, yes, nonprofits, it's a paradigm shift. So are you guys um, prepared to, I I guess, provide technical assistance, training, and consulting to CDCs, and when I say CDC, Community Development Corporations, who might be interested in listening to what you have to say? Well, we've done two things. First of all, we Mm -hmm. tested our theory. We launched launched a fund, uh, not ourselves. What we did was mm-hmm. we connected with, just so like, you know, amigos talk about walk, walking like you're talking. We went mm-hmm. out and got fund, capital funds, and we are in the midst of deploying those funds into a project. And we have it all laid out. So what we did was create uh, spreadsheets for the investment proposition. And we were able to bring in some investors and began to take a look at deploying this money. And they've made commitments. They've made commitments. So the commitment is there. We got the project on the contract. Um, They've made commitments to deploy this money into this particular community. We got a second project on the west side, and I'm not at liberty to talk about it yet, but it's humongous, and it's a game changer. And we are in the midst right now, it's in the heart of the west side, we're in the midst right now of convincing capital gains managers and or wealth managers to deploy into this particular community because it will change this community forever with this deployment. So, yeah, we, you know, while we... We are prepared. The reason why we're doing this, we are prepared to talk to anyone who wants to hear this about what we've been doing, and we can apply some assistance. We're willing and we're able Mm -hmm. to do it to answer your question. Okay, so what about residents, you know, people who may not necessarily have money to invest? And then I know Corey talked about – working with people in the community to develop their skill level so that they can earn higher income. But, you know, what if you just want to lay back and invest? You know, is there an opportunity for you as a small investor, and what does that look like? And I think you mentioned that there there were some opportunities, but what, what do those look like? Well, if you just want to lay back and invest, that looks like dividend returns. That looks okay. like um, that looks like return on your capital based on what you you invest. Uh, if you mm-hmm. just want to invest, then you'll have a portfolio, um, okay. which by which based on a percentage of your investment, we create a deal where you mm-hmm. get you get certain returns. That's just if you want to invest. So that that sort of okay. That's an easy one, mm-hmm. but that wouldn't oper- that would not operate under opportunity zone or opportunity fund benefits or anything like that. Uh, that would just be a traditional investment opportunity uh, for somebody like that. Okay. 
you know, um, unless they're, and I mean, unless they're just ultimately pulling out of, you know, an investment fund or something of that nature. But if somebody is just uh, at the house and, and they're looking mm-hmm. at, okay, I want to try to get in and, and start buying up some of these mm-hmm. two flats or I want to start, you know, uh, I want to, my way that I see myself being able to take advantage of this opportunity fund um, situation that's going to be, that's going on is to start investing mm-hmm. traditionally in some of the communities that, you know, I'm in. I mean, I think that's mm-hmm. a great way, right? Because you're going to benefit okay. from, you know, the change of the area, you're going to benefit. So, I mean, I think that, you know, going back to, to what we were talking about is, is finding creative ways to become involved uh, in your community um, through, through ownership, right? Um, and doing things mm-hmm. that, um, are going to grow your your family's wealth structure, um, and so going through a traditional investment is still a very good way um, in these communities to to get involved and to also benefit from what's going on um, with the opportunity zones. And so, I mean, it, that becomes a matter of tracking, plan developments around, and trying to see if you can hit right at the right time on those waves um, as investments mm-hmm. are happening. Okay, great. So I want to remind our listening audience, normally our show has wound down by now, but we're in overtime. But I wanted to remind our listening audience that you're listening to Anthony Oliver. He is the founder of Civic, and you're also listening to Corey Oliver. He's the chief operating officer. They're guests on the nonprofit Utopia podcast. And if you have any questions, um, feel free to call in. The number is 347-884-8121. And I do see that there is a caller that I haven't recognized yet. I call her at area code 708-528-1183. I'm going to make your mic live. If you have any comments or questions, um, please share. Um, your, Your mic is live right now. Okay, I'm assuming that because I haven't heard from you that you're just listening. All right, so we'll mute you again, and we will go back to to our conversation. So what are some of the ways that we can position ourselves as a community? Suppose you don't really understand real estate, but you really want to position yourself to not only take advantage of the traditional opportunity, and I would imagine that would have to come first unless you're in, invested in a mutual fund or something, um, and then grow to the point where you're investing capital gains. So how – okay, so well, for example, I, I do – okay, go ahead. Well, well there's five ways I, I kind of mm-hmm. outline in, in my letter to the community. The first way is to learn what makes this option attractive for wealthy investors. Learn that. Okay, do your do your work because it's happening. You need to know what they know in order for you to understand how you move forward. Secondly, learn the IRS ruling that guides the deployment of the fund. And that number for the ruling is 1400Z-1 and 2. That's where you're going to find how the IRS is guiding the fund. You you really want to know, you know, where the guides are because you want to know how to control your your efforts 
and also control your investment model. The third thing is learn how to leverage the value proposition of the inner city assets. Now, remember, you can invest opportunity funds in small businesses, and you can invest opportunity funds in real estate. Real estate happens to be the clearest cut return on investment, so you're going to see people really making the choice of real estate over small businesses. But I would say let's not cancel small businesses. Um, and those could be nonprofits and for-profits. We have to think about them differently, but the fund can actually be used for that. The fourth thing is let's lead with a quantifiable mission-based position that competes well in the mm -hmm. open market. Let's lead with something quantifiable. For example, if you're going to make a case to a particular funder, a fund, you would talk about it in senses of you have this asset, this asset will perform over a five, seven-year period, and we believe that we will offer a X percent, you know, let's, for, the, for the sake of conversation, we believe that we will do a 15 to 18 percent, which is really good, but Clearly, we've, we've kind of done some of that in the past, but it's really good. Mm -hmm. You offer a 15% uh, return on investment at the end of your exit strategy and also uh, based on your dividend, based on giving you money every quarterly back on your investment, you know, at the end of the year, you'll have 10 to 11%, okay, which under the yeah, fund can be tax-free, Right. So you making money, they making money, and you building your community. And the fifth thing is lead with a real estate as your foundation of your business model to increase sustainability. So I think those five things right there, Valerie, if we can begin to position our mindsets, I know it's not what we're used to, and I know you say, well, this is difficult, but it, it really it really isn't. It's the thing that we do. There are things that we do every day that we see every day. We're just putting, we're now calculating value to those things. And, and we're selling them based on value. And at the end of the day, we're building people's lives and putting people to greater levels of self-sufficiency. And, and I think, Valerie, you know, one of the things, I mean, because you, you had said, you know, and the question is, you know, somebody who's not necessarily inclined to real estate. Um, I mean, I think that, you know, there's plenty of people that I've talked to who when you start talking real estate and, and things like that, it just, it's either A, extremely boring or, you know, they, they don't they don't have any interest, you know. And I think uh, the new ruling that came out last week where it clarifies investment into, um, you know, businesses and small businesses and things like that that do operate within opportunity zones, um, you know, if, if you can sit down and you can figure out the exit strategy for the investor, because one of the biggest things about this um, mechanism is that it is not going to be into perpetuity. There has to be an exit strategy. There has to be a way uh, to dissolve the fund at a certain point in time. Um, and so, you know, with businesses, it, it becomes a little bit harder. But, I mean, some people create businesses to sell them. 
you know. And so, mm-hmm. you know, if there is somebody who is interested in, you know, funding a, a business or, you know, something of that nature, and they're open to the concept of selling it or they can put together a strategy in which they can buy the investor out of their equity position, I mean, I think that that becomes a very realistic position um, for an investor to come in and, and, and dump money, you know, working capital, et cetera, into their business. They have to give up a certain amount of equity uh, because all investments have to be in equity position, so they can't operate as a loan. They can't operate as a grant. Mm-hmm. It has to be an equity p- uh, purchasing position. Um, you know, but if you, you have people who are out there who are open to creating businesses with the concept is I'm going to make this thing bang as, as long as I can, and then at this certain point I'm going to try to sell it for while it's at its high, high point. You know, I, I do think, you know, that is a way that somebody who might not be as entrenched in the real estate market uh, could still come in and capitalize on what's going on and create businesses that are going to service uh, opportunities on communities. Okay, great. It looks like we have another caller. I'm going to call on you. Your number is 773-532-9850. I'm going to make your mic live, and if you have any comments or questions, please share them. You're live now. Did you have any comments or questions? I did. I wanted to uh, thank your guest. Um, really, a, more of a comment than a question. Um, this has been very helpful uh, for me. We are working on the development of a portfolio uh, for funding, and the benefit of hearing uh, basically these leaders in social enterprise uh, talk more, just sharing their intellectual capital has been helpful today. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, I just wanted them to know that you know, as I sat here and listened, uh, I was able to check off a number of the assumptions that we've been making. Uh, I was encouraged by the conversation about uh, innovation and the flexibility that um, you know the, the smaller uh, CDC or community developer can bring to this, and really just uh, you know made a, a very helpful checklist of uh, some things that. I guess if I would uh, label them, uh, really understanding how to translate this proposition that we're leveraging it. to the potential investor. Make it, so I, I got that, and um, very helpful. Well, that's Thank great. You. I think I recognize your voice, caller. Yes. <laughs> is, that, yes. is it okay if I acknowledge you? Sure, absolutely. This, I yes. believe <laughs> Paula Robinson, right? Right, right. I I was so good, so excited to to uh, see the reminder for this webinar, and um, you know it, it's just important when I talk about the intellectual capital that's being shared here. You know, these are guys when you talk about streetwise and the study that I've been involved in with social enterprise. I mean, you guys are a part of that uh, business case study. So we're we're having our own business school. Uh, case study review today, and I appreciate it. Well, you're still welcome, and and good luck with your portfolio. I think, I think you're ahead of the game right now. Uh, don't forget to download that new code and regulations that just hit last Wednesday. Um, I think you're going to find some helpful strategies in there based on guiding this fund uh, to your to your domain. Um, 
So get in, you know, what you're doing is absolutely the right thing. Absolutely. Tell everybody. Tell everybody what you're doing. It's not a secret. It shouldn't be held a secret because you're in a trillion-dollar market. There's something there for all of us to crack this cold with. So we don't have to be hesitant and get in a corner and say, oh, I learned this first. No, 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 no. There's, a, there's enough out there to learn about and begin to activate. And if there's anything we can do to partner, let's partner. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for calling, Paula. Okay, so we got all of 14 minutes left before the system boots us off. And if you don't mind, I'd like to use all 14. This is very exciting stuff. Okay. So what are some of the lessons that you've learned along the way? You know, I, I know this couldn't have all been been rosy. I know it's been challenging. So if you guys want to share some of the lessons that you've learned. Corey, do you want to start? I'll let my son start because he's getting beat up. Well, I mean, <laughs> you know, I, it's been it's been an interesting process uh, going through the hard part was originally when the first set of uh, regulations came down. I mean, there were just so many questions. Everybody had questions about everything. It was just so vague and, and, and so broad, um, you know, trying to draw people in uh, and, and getting them to hop off the sidelines when, you know, there were opportunities that were coming around because the, the investors had so many questions and uh, there were so many gray areas. It was was very hard, you know. I mean, you're you're trying to – um, you know, and so that leaves every in, in any type of situation where things become down to interpretation. Um, you and I could read the same paragraph and, and interpret it completely differently. Um, you know, and so now we're sitting in in, in spaces and things like that um, where where people are not having a uniform understanding of what is going on. You know, and we're trying to fight to gain um, knowledge base on, on what all of this stuff is 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 very complicated. You know, and then you have the actual selection of zones. You know, I think um, one of the best things that happened in Chicago was actual a realistic placement of the zones. You know, I mean, you look at some of the other states that are out here um, and uh, even some of the other cities, you know, you see, like, downtown Indianapolis is an opportunity zone. You see, like, the, the Jersey Shore is an opportunity zone. Places off of the coast of San Diego are opportunity zones. Um, you know, and I know one of the first people that I sat down and talked with about this was, are the areas who truly um, going to need this assistance going to get it because of the zones that were and the, the locations of the zones that were selected? You know, so I was always very appreciative because when when we look at Chicago and where our zones are placed, I mean these communities are are in need of investment and are in need of, of recapitalization and, and things like that. And so, uh, trying to show these people that. Um, you know, there is large value here, and, and based off of our history and our track record and what we've done to show that we have just as much value in our communities who really actually need the investments, you know, compared to like a downtown Indianapolis who's been being invested in for the last 20 years, uh, <laughs> right. you know, is it, a, a roadblock. You know, it, it is a hurdle, you know, um, you know, but I think now and, and – we are are going through this this new tranche of legislation and the 169 pages, trying to make sure that 
we are seeing the same things. I mean, uh, me and me and Dad earlier today had a conversation on just our interpretation on a paragraph. You know, are we looking at reading this mm -hmm. thing the same way? Um, you know, and so trying to get in, have these discussions, talk about what these regulations mean, and then figuring out how to solve that problem of driving that pipeline into the communities that need it, um, while also making sure that the communities that are getting serviced are also, you know, dealing in, and the people in those communities are getting the resources that they need to be able to grow with those communities. Um, you know, I mean, there, there, there's a lot of tripwires as you go and navigate to this. There, there is, and, and let me just add this. We we stumbled. We stumbled. Um, it's a blank slate. You know, we couldn't get our pitch together. We mm -hmm. uh, made mistakes, but I, there's one thing, another tr real quick true story. When mm -hmm. I was building Streetwise in the 90s, everybody was calling me a poverty pimp, that I was pimping the homeless. I mean, you, you can go on the wow. reader where we had this, you know, they thought, you know, look at this dude, man, putting these homeless people to work, man, and making money off of them. But Exploit also there them. were roadblocks. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> Exploiting them. But look who's been exploited, right? They, they've been working. Right. And they, you know. but, but there was also roadblocks that I could not get over and navigate. And let me tell you about this today. You talk about the challenges. They're roadblocks because people mm -hmm. are set on certain benchmarks, and they're set in their ways. But there was one man back then that I could go to. I have to give him all the kudos and the big ups in the world. And he was Commissioner Danny Davis back then, back then in 1993 and 1994. He was Commissioner mm -hmm. Danny Davis, and today he is Congressman Kate Davis of the 7th Congressional District. And he has been the first person to get this and sign on and become a partner in this journey with us. Once again, this dream relives itself. That's why I say I see something. It's much bigger mm -hmm. than me. You know, Tasha Cobb says breaking every chain. She didn't say, you know, she didn't say break one chain. She said break every chain. And so I keep getting this song in my head as we continue this journey down this road that we are breaking chains, and you need people to go on this journey with you. So it's been very challenging. It's been sometimes it's been um, it's been discouraging, but we ain't discouraged. I mean, don't get me wrong, we're not discouraged, but it's it's been difficult because you feel like you're in this thing alone. Mm -hmm. But today, because of you, Valerie. And the fact that you are putting us in the podcast, and hopefully, you know, there's people that are listening that are just not activated. Hopefully we're stimulating some thoughts, like the, the young lady who we just talked to today, because she inspires us with her story as well. So um, those, those, are, those are the challenges, and it's hard. It's not, you know, it's hard because the concept is, it's a different concept. We, we're not bred to think this way. You know, mm -hmm. we feel we're going to go and sit down and write a grant, and it's easy because the boundaries are laid out in front of you, and all i got to do is answer these questions. Not, this is not what that is. This <laughs> is an open market, open market tabla rasa. You create the investment proposition. You take it to the market. You sell it. You got a bunch 
of capital gains that are looking for a home and don't quit. They're looking for a home. And, yes, we don't have the answer. No, we don't have the answer yet. But remember, this fund is here today, and it's not going away. Okay, I love it. We have all of probably, oh, my goodness, we only have seven minutes and really not quite that much because we don't want our conversation to get cut off. Can you tell us about your weekly show on WVON? Uh, yeah, on on Saturday mornings between 11 and 12 a.m., um, I do a show on WVON where we talk about the real estate market and um, and the, the business of real estate from the investor's point of view. So you're looking at more of a um, conversation with people who are involved in the market. Uh, just this last week, I had a, a commercial broker on uh, where we talked mm-hmm. about the difference between a residential and a commercial broker, where we talked about uh, investing in family, multifamily buildings, um, market research, uh, building your team, things like that. And so uh, we really take a, a very analytical look at what it is that we do on a day-to-day basis, who we have on our teams, and, and, and how you could potentially build something that is very similar for you and in, in, in your family or, or or your, you know, business partners. And, and we're watching that runaway gentrification. gentrification. We are we're on top of that, Valerie. We, you know, we know that that can go at any moment. And you know, we're talking to the brokers, um, mm-hmm. asking those brokers about their price points. You know, you're coming into the community. We've, we're a community that hasn't rebounded from a crash. Everybody right. else got their money. We didn't get our money. Everybody else got their money. They bailed out, they bailed out the two bigs to fail. Mm-hmm. The money was supposed to trickle down then. And so the low-income community was left in despair and distress. And even though this crash is supposedly over, when you're down here, when we at, when you work where, where we work, where you employ employees from the profile of men and women we see every day, we know that that money hasn't trickled down to create substantial critical mass in our communities. And now you got this great proposition that we should not be afraid of because I think somebody said that what was meant to go against you can be for you. And so the same things that are happening now on this blank slate, we have an opportunity to carve something out, whether, you know, we create more businesses in our community, whether we create smaller real estate investments in our community, which is my target. I like to see the small player get in because we are Mm -hmm. the sustainable force to the big players. Or whether we create jobs for the low labor, man or woman, who may have made a bad choice in life, but they seem to be victimized by their options and left with very few. I guarantee you this because I've seen it. When you get a homeless man from out from under Lower Wacker Drive and you put an economic in his hand, I got story after story today 
of our men and women who started back in the 90s as streetwise that are doing construction, driving buses, working at post office. But they were once homeless. I got those stories. I know those stories. So I've seen this miracle of when you create that economic parity at the bottom. I've seen it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I don't think... I don't think we should be put off by the fact, Valerie, that it's a little difficult to get this. Mm-hmm. I don't think I think we're smart people. I think mm-hmm. we we understand that the challenge is in the intellect capital now. And that we have an opportunity to go to a much bigger marketplace. And you put those two things together along with the most compelling part the trickle down into the low-income community for the potential capital gains person. You're already at home. The money is coming okay. to your backyard. Great. we got one, one minute left, and I want to make sure people know how to contact you and Corey. Well, you can, you can our website, um, you can contact our website. Corey, what's, what's the CVIC website? www.cvicchicago.com, uh, mm-hmm. or you can call us directly at our office at 773-955-7800, as for Anthony O'Corey, and we'll be happy to do whatever you need us to do. Okay, and I apologize. I've been been mispronouncing your name all throughout the show. It's not civic, but civic. It's the same. The people call it civic, civic. I use civic, C-V-I-C, Community Venture Investment Corporation, civic, civic. Okay, awesome. All right, well, we're going to have to wind down. We're going to be booted off in less than 30 seconds. So I want to thank you, Valerie. Anthony. Yes, yes. You guys are welcome. We've got Anthony Oliver, Corey Oliver from CIVIC. And I also have their um, email addresses on the slideshow that's going through in the event that you missed the um, the information. And you can always listen to this. All righty. So you guys take care. Well, Thank you again. Watch this space. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Okay. Right. Bye-bye.